0: All right, well, good morning, everybody. We are in the Book of Acts. This is our second week in Acts. So if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to uh, jump on the podcast. You can get that through the app or through the website or through podcast places where you go to do podcasts. It's there. You just type in Anthem Thousand Oaks and we show up. Um, and would love for you to actually get a sense of the building story of Acts. So if you do miss weeks along the way, Uh, Acts is not one of those ones where you can just kind of skip over uh, a a significant segment and then just pick up. There's actually a building story. Uh, There's a building um, sense of the Spirit of God at work. There's a building narrative of the church, and it's helpful to actually stay connected to that. So I would encourage you to take full advantage of the podcast for that. But to get started, we're actually going to start not in the book of Acts. I want to start with something that's called the Great Commission, uh, the Great Commission is in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. You can open your Bibles there, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And it was given that title uh, by a 17th century theologian who saw the significance of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28 and started using this terminology or this phrase, the Great Commission. And when you think about a commission, it's, a, uh, it's an assignment, it's a task, usually something formal. A commission is uh, where maybe you're given for your work or for even like a, a governmental project, you're given this commission to go and do a certain set of things. And that's, that's what the 17th century theologian wanted to help us understand by giving it the title of the Great Commission. And it says this, it says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's Jesus speaking. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold I am with you always to the end of the age. Now that commission it speaks to the, the purpose for why we 're here on earth. We talk about this often, where uh, it would seem to make a lot more sense if heaven truly is paradise, if eternity is where we all want to be, and life here can be somewhat difficult and weighty and challenging. Wouldn't it make more sense if the moment somebody says yes to Jesus, they're just sucked up out of this life and placed in eternity, done, beautiful, finished, it's over. I get to enjoy, enjoy eternity from day one. And you would think that would make a lot of sense. It might even be an evangelistic tool. If people start seeing others hitting the eject button, they're just like, okay, time to believe in Jesus and I'm out of here. And it it might have an effect, but that's, that's never been the plan of God. Actually, the plan of God, and we'll see it a little bit in our Acts passage today, has more to do with this return of Jesus, the renewal of God's creation, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. There's a sense of God actually redeeming his creation, and our eternity ultimately will be spent here with God's dwelling place here. And so there's this sense now of God giving us a task, an assignment, For our physical lives here, in preparation for our eternal lives, for all eternity. And that commission, that assignment, is to make disciples. Now, the idea of making disciples is the the project of teaching people to obey all that Jesus commanded. Starting to formulate our lives around the person and work of Jesus. What did he accomplish through his death and resurrection? What did he teach? How do we see the world now through the lens of Jesus as our rabbi, as our teacher, as our shepherd, as our king? His worldview becoming our worldview. His objectives becoming our objectives. His heart and compassion becoming our heart and compassion. That's what it would mean to make a disciple. And that task is not just given to the people that were standing with Jesus in that moment. But that's one of the beautiful things of the book of Acts. Is we see each subsequent generation taking on the Great Commission as their own assignment. And it's not just a one generational assignment. They each take it on and say, okay, more, 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 more. And what we get today in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, is we get another moment where Jesus gives this, this framing of our assignment, our task. He helps us understand what we are supposed to be doing with our lives. And this doesn't mean that we don't work that we don't have kids and raise them, that we don't get an education and we're not contributing to society. It doesn't mean that we vacate all of those vocations and focus solely on a singular purpose of making disciples. It's actually more as you go about the life that God has given you, the vocation, the family, the community, the areas of influence, as you go about those things, you are to make disciples along the way. And Jesus speaks to that in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So if you have your Bibles now, you can flip over to Acts 1, and let's read through this together. All right, so it says this. Uh, This is Luke writing. He says, so when they had come together, they asked him. So the day's a little bit ambiguous. Just think of a, a grouping of disciples. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us Jesus appeared to around 500 of his disciples after his resurrection. So some grouping of that 500 people. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. All right, so that's our our passage for today. Lord, would you give us insight and wisdom to understand uh, our place in this beautiful story that you're writing. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, Luke starts off by sharing a question that the disciples had that many of the readers in that early first century might have had as well. Is it time for Israel to become the nation that rules over other nations? Now, sometimes 2,000 years later, we can look back on, maybe it's the disciples, and we just think, oh, those guys were such fools. Or we can look back on the Pharisees and think, how could they not get it? Or a question like this comes up, and we just think, they still didn't understand. And that's kind of a question to ask, is were they misunderstanding something when they asked the question, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time for that? The reality is the Old Testament is full of this promise of God. Uh, Psalm 89, 26 and 27 is a great example of that. It says, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Okay, so that's just one example of many, 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 many examples where God speaks to the Messiah being uh, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Even Isaiah 6, Isaiah 9, they speak to this. Isaiah 9, sorry, not Isaiah 6. Isaiah 9 speaks to this. There are these passages that deal with Jesus being the king. It's part of the fulfillment of the promise to David that a king would sit on his throne forever. And so they're not crazy. And the reality is, even if you're formulating your doctrine and just thinking, okay, Israel is out of God's story, that would... That would be a bit of a mistake. If you go to Revelation chapter 21, I just want to show you something to see even a picture of how heaven and eternity are communicated to John as he's witnessing this. Okay, so this is Revelation 21, starting in verse 10. It says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. "...having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the picture that's given in Revelation is a picture of Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down out of heaven, and there are these massive gates, and the gates have inscribed on them the 12 tribes of Israel. And at the same time, this holy city is built on 12 foundations that are the apostles, and you get this picture of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant being fulfilled in this eternal kingdom of God as it comes down in the form of the new city, Jerusalem. So even thinking about, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were a little bit off, and Jesus speaks to that and says, look, that's way above your pay grade. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has appointed by his own authority. That's that's God's business about how he's going to consummate his kingdom, but there is an important story being written that God has this storyline through the nation of Israel. He's going to bring about the Messiah. And God continues to use the picture of Jerusalem, specifically the picture of Jerusalem, to articulate this future city where he will dwell with his people for all time. His presence will be among all of his people. So just know that the apostles and disciples and followers of Jesus that were asking this question, they weren't crazy for asking the question But Jesus isn't harsh with them in his response. He said, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So, one important thing for you to take away from this it is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You may get caught up in people trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come again. I remember a bunch of years ago, there were all kinds of theories floating around about which world leader was the Antichrist and and how the end times were going to begin. It's not for us to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's not our place. That shouldn't occupy your efforts and your attentions. That's not your assignment. Sometimes it can be challenging to be told that that is above your pay grade or it's classified. (laughs) We don't like hearing that in our pride. We, we like to think that we're more important than that, that we deserve to know. And this is Jesus telling his disciples, it's not for you to know. But, this is a very important but. So they ask a question, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus turns it around and says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. This is a really important transition where the disciples have watched Jesus for three years, minister, heal, teach, do all kinds of work, miracles. It's, an, it's been an incredible season for them. There have even been moments where Jesus has empowered the disciples to go out two by two. They got to go out and they got to cast demons out. They got to see people healed. They got to actually participate in some of the same things that Jesus was doing. And they came back and gave a report. There was even a moment where they tried To cast out a demon and they failed. And Jesus told them, well, that's the kind that can only come out by prayer and fasting. Come on, guys. (laughs) But they've had these experiences of joining with Jesus in the coming of the kingdom of God. Gotten to experience his power. Think about Peter climbing out of the boat and putting his foot on water and he didn't sink. You think of the disciples with those loaves and fish And standing there with Jesus, troubleshooting how we're going to feed everybody. And then they start handing it out. And every time they tear off a piece of bread or give out a piece of fish, it just keeps multiplying in their hands. And then they go and they pick up all the leftovers. And they're sitting there thinking, look at all of this stuff. And they got to be agents of the power that went through them. So they haven't just been observers. But this is an important moment. Where Jesus is actually communicating to them. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. That's, that's a different story. The restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Put a pin in that. There's something else that's going to happen right now. And it involves you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What do you think of when you think of the word power? Power. And sometimes our brains might go to the abuse of power, and there might be some challenges with the word power right now because it does have a, a feel of how people might take uh, their position and use it for their own benefit and that kind of a thing. So maybe there's some baggage attached to the word power. But when you think of, when you think of power, the kind of power that Jesus is talking about, it's not positional. He's not telling his disciples that you're going to rule with an iron fist. You're going to have so much authority that people will do whatever you tell them. That's not what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's actually telling them something different, something more internal. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This isn't just positional authority. This is power that's actually God's power residing in you to work through you. Now their brains would not have gone to places like power and authority, because they would have actually experienced already the power of God flowing through them. They would have already gotten to see those miracle moments and those power moments that they got to participate in. And now they're understanding that Jesus is speaking to a new reality that they get to walk in. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. Now, this is an important word. The word witness is something that, uh, that is critical in our understanding of what it means to make disciples. Now, for this original crew, they had been physical witnesses of the resurrection. So they could go and tell people, I saw the risen Christ. And maybe you even look at a passage like this and say, well, it was different for them because they saw the risen Christ, and now we're in a generation of people that have not seen the risen Christ, and so this isn't our assignment anymore. We're not witnesses in the same way that the first crew of people were. But you start to see as the New Testament goes on, you even get to the end of 1 Timothy, and Paul's writing to Timothy, a person that never witnessed the resurrected Christ. He's a generation removed, maybe even two generations removed from an eyewitness to the resurrection, and Paul's telling him to testify and to do the work of an evangelist to go and tell people about the risen Christ. So we know that this was not simply about being an eyewitness to the resurrection, that Jesus was empowering his disciples as eyewitnesses. There's still something different going on. Jesus is telling us that we have a job to do. This is our assignment. I want to take a brief moment and just talk about something called our missiology. Our missiology, our understanding of mission. Okay, when you think about mission, uh, missio, we've talked often about it, how it's the same word as the word apostolos. So missio in Latin, uh, apostello in Greek, they mean the same thing. Sent ones, it's the idea of Uh, Being an emissary or a carrier of this truth, it's very important. But our missiology is our understanding of what is our purpose, what is our mission, what is our task, what is our assignment. So I want to take a few minutes and walk through our understanding of our assignment. So in John 20, 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So Jesus will often call him the great apostle, the sent one, and then he then sends apostles, So the sent one sends. It's an important thing. We'll actually see this. uh, I guess I have this passage on there. We'll see this a little later in 2 Timothy 2, where Paul, an apostle, a sent one, tells Timothy, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will teach others also. So the sent one sends. And it becomes the pattern of the New Testament. that As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So, for us as followers of Jesus, we see something like that and we start to understand that our mission comes from God through Jesus to us, that there is a purpose for our lives. And it is the same purpose that Jesus came here with. Now, Jesus had a unique task in his death and resurrection. Your death whenever it happens, could not have any of the effect that Jesus' death had because you're a sinner and your sin would only cover your own death, whereas Jesus was perfect and sinless, and his death is once for all. His death covers the sins of all. It's different. We read through that in Romans. We spent a lot of time working through that just in our last series in Romans. If you'd like to go get the podcast from chapter 5, that would be a key place to go to for understanding the death of Jesus applying to all people. But Jesus' work to proclaim the kingdom of God, to set captives free, to make disciples, that same work that Jesus fulfilled has now been applied to us. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. We already looked at Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. We're looking now at Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses. 2 Timothy 2. The things you've heard me say, Paul says to Timothy, entrust to faithful men who will teach others also. 1 Peter 2.9. Says that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. It's beautiful. And then it says that we proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into this marvelous light. Proclaim the excellencies. Who are you proclaiming the excellencies of him to? Peter will talk about it in just, a, just a little bit later in there. Always being prepared to give an answer to those who inquire about the hope that you have. We're talking about people that don't know Jesus looking at us, and we are proclaiming the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into this marvelous light. Romans 10, 14 through 17, it's a big, robust section, but it does talk about how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul's talking to the Romans and he's talking about the gospel advancement and there's this key element of we don't just hope that everybody hears the gospel. We don't just wish that somebody else would do the great work. Man, I hope everybody goes to the Harvest Crusade this year so they can hear the gospel. I really hope that people listen to this podcast. I really, really hope that somebody gets a Bible in their hands. And Paul's writing, he's like, hey, how how are they supposed to hear Unless somebody's preaching, we don't look at that and say, "I hope that somebody else will do that." We understand our role as to be participants, contributors. Jesus talked about this when he said, "The harvest is plentiful." Matthew nine thirty-seven and thirty-eight: "The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers." We need more people reaping the harvest of what God is doing in the world that is part of our missiology that there would be an increase in the laborers the people willing to do the work of reaping the harvest and then in Acts chapter 8 verse 4 guys I love the book of Acts and I can't wait to get to Acts chapter 8 Acts chapter 11 Acts chapter 13 they're so good Because from Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 42 through 46, which Rob gets to preach in a couple of weeks, and I'm very jealous, but from that section where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer, from that moment, the early church took shape in Jerusalem. And it grew, and there were thousands of people. It was the first mega church. And they would meet in the temple courts and house to house. They would meet on Sundays, and they would meet in small groups. You know, they just do the life together, big, small, And it's this beautiful early church in Jerusalem that lasts somewhere between six and 18 months. And then Acts chapter eight happens and a great persecution arises and everybody left Jerusalem. Everybody, except the apostles. That's what Luke says in Acts chapter eight. They all left except the apostles. But then Acts chapter eight, verse four says this. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Apostles or (laughs) non-apostles? From a technical point of view, non-apostles. But the fact that we're a part of an apostolic story and everybody just got scattered because of persecution and they didn't go out thinking, man, I wish the apostles were here to teach all these people. They went out preaching the word. I I hope you've heard me say this before, and if you haven't, I'm going to say it again. I don't hope that you come here to a Sunday morning to hear a good teaching, to chew on it all week, and then to come back again the next week and hear a good teaching and chew on it all week. This is supposed to be an equipping hour. As you are part of the teaching of Anthem Church, the collective teaching of what we do as a church, it is preparing you and equipping you so that if a persecution ever arises or you have to move for any reason or this church has to close its doors, again, whatever reason, you don't just thumb around and think, when's the next person gonna teach me some good stuff? You go out as a preacher of the word. And not even if this church were to close down, but when we say amen at the end of a Sunday gathering, you go out. As preachers of the word, bringing the name of Jesus into every dark corner of this planet that you have influence in and that you have opportunity to preach to, you go out as preachers of the word. This is designed to equip you. It's why we walk through the scriptures diligently. We, we go through them, hoping to actually teach you not only what they say, but how the word of God is compiled how the word of God is communicated, how it all fits together. Because those are the kinds of things that you get to preach when you go out and you have coffees with people or you get the opportunity to go for a drive with somebody and just have a chat. It's an incredible opportunity for you to preach the word. And that's what you're here to do. That's our, our missiology. That's our understanding of the mission of all believers. At 1 Peter 2.9 says that you are a royal priesthood. That's why we, we kick so hard against the Catholic idea of there being priests and lay people because Peter slams those categories together and says that every single follower of Jesus is now a royal priest. You get to function in that place, and this is why we use the phrase helping people find their way back to God, You have the message and the ministry of reconciliation according to 2 Corinthians 5. You are empowered to go out into the world and to facilitate reconciliation between people and God, their creator. That's what you're here to do. So you don't look to the priests or honestly to like clergy or professional pastors or staff people or evangelists that do big crusades. You don't look to them and say, when are they going to get their job done? You understand that it's my job. It's my job. Each and every one of us taking that on. Now, that is an impossible job to do. You are not capable. Super insufficient to do the job. And so am I. And that's why Jesus did not bypass the most important part of this statement, He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit fills you, you have what you need to articulate the gospel. Now there are some practices that are related to evangelism. Uh, Show of hands, how many of you have at some point felt insufficient in an evangelistic moment talking to somebody about the gospel? Okay, great, yes. From a practical point of view, I want you to understand that you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you and with you at all times, but many of us don't know what that means or how to tap into that in an evangelistic moment. And I just want to start with the most simple thing. If you know you're going to spend time with somebody that doesn't know Jesus, like you're on your way to work and you know you're going to have maybe one-on-one time with a coworker for a while... If you're a cop driving around with a partner, I don't know if you, you know, whatever it is. Like whatever the time thing is that you've got, extended time. A very simple prayer. Holy Spirit, I know you're with me. Would you give me ears to hear and words to say that would help point this person to Jesus? As a simple starting point, You can begin to access the power of the Spirit that rests on you if you're a follower of Jesus by simply preparing yourself. Holy Spirit, would you work through me in this moment? Speak. Help me listen. Help me ask good questions. Maybe you know something about the person. Maybe you know they're going through difficulty or trauma. Lord, help me to be a a compassionate friend. I'm going to point them to you as a a source of comfort. But you use the Holy Spirit that is with you to step into those moments. Now, maybe you're like, okay, but I'm with unbelievers all the time. Great. Pray all the time. (laughs) Honestly, that's what we need. We need the power of the Holy Spirit with each and every one of those people freshly. And I'll be honest, the the power of the Holy Spirit is not just to witness. There is the power of the Holy Spirit also to fight for unity in the body of Christ, to actually cultivate trust in the body of Christ, to encourage and bless. I pray that same prayer before preaching. I pray that same prayer before Donut Day with my kids a lot of the times. I pray that same prayer before family worship. Like that, That prayer is an important one to live by the power of the Spirit, not just for evangelism, but I'm telling you, there is a hunger for God to see that harvest yield, to come to him. And he loves, he loves to fill us with his power. And we see it all through the book of Acts. So start there. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Now, <clears throat> next thing. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So much has been made about this. Some people have tried to allegorize it, metaphorize it, whatever it is. Let's just talk about this. Jesus did give a sequence and a plan. Jerusalem, we saw it in the Bible Project video, the first seven chapters of Acts are focused on Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, 8 through 12 are focused on Judea, Samaria. Ends of the earth, 13 through 28 and beyond are focused on the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus very easily could have said something different. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, and you'll be my witnesses all the way to Rome if he wanted to communicate something more limited to the scope of that era. But Jesus was communicating something that was designed to go on in perpetuity, and so he uses the language of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, to say to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria. They're like, okay. He would have said Jerusalem. They're like, got it. He would have said Judea. Okay. He would have said Samaria. And they would have been like, no. And then he would have said ends of the earth. And be like, well, what are you talking about? Like that's, this would have upset their thinking. But it completely reformatted how these people live their lives. Our location is no longer fixed. But we've been uprooted for the purpose of the gospel. We start to actually move around this world to proclaim Jesus. Wherever the Lord says, go, we go. Now, here's the thing. I would believe wholeheartedly, if you're a follower of Jesus and you get a job reassignment. We were talking with a couple this week. He got a job reassignment from Omaha to Southern California. That was not his company. That was Jesus' assignment saying, I need you to move from Omaha to Southern California because I have an assignment for you. Stuff doesn't happen by random and by accident. You're not here because you just happen to stumble upon the Keneo Valley and live in this community. You are here because until otherwise articulated, this is your mission field. Until God comes to you and says, hey, I'm going to pluck you out of the Keneo Valley and I'm going to drop you somewhere else. Until that moment, this is your ends of the earth not even going to try and say it's your Jerusalem, like it's your your people that are in your immediate surroundings. We are the ends of the earth. We are way beyond the earth that they knew about at the moment that Jesus proclaimed the ends of the earth. We're the ends of the earth, and it's just supposed to keep on going. It doesn't stop. We just keep preaching the gospel, and what's unbelievably overwhelming at times, kind of like the cards in the prayer room, is that every generation, a new crop of people are born into this world that don't know Jesus, and a new ends of the earth are born every single day. People born into this world not knowing Jesus, and we have been given the assignment, the task of proclaiming the gospel again and again and again and again until he comes again. And we don't stop. There's no off ramp. Until you physically die, your assignment is to be a witness to the ends of the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit so that people can know and experience the kingdom of God. His love poured out on them, his grace, lavish grace. It doesn't stop. So then this great moment happens, the ascension. Verse 9, it says, And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, a couple of really important things. Jesus promised that this was going to happen, and that it did. A couple of passages, John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am going, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. John 14, again, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live in that day. You will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Again, John 14, great chapter. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There's this moment moment that's going to happen where Jesus says, I will not be with you in the same way, but the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and I will be with you. That's why the Spirit is oftentimes referred to as the Spirit of Christ. I will be with you to the very end of the age. So Jesus' physical body ascends to heaven, and shortly thereafter, the Holy Spirit is given to the church, and that's what takes place in the ascension moment. And we get these two beautiful things That the angels fill in in that moment. First one, it's time to get going. Don't just stand there. We're not just supposed to stand looking at the sky waiting for Jesus to come back. The Thessalonians were doing that. The Thessalonians stopped working and they would just wait for Jesus to come back. And Paul writes to them and says, Get to work guys, that's not how this works. Just get to work. There's there's life to be had while we wait for the coming of Jesus. You don't just stop everything and wait for Jesus. You keep going. Keep making disciples. Keep going in your vocation until Jesus comes again. So the angels are there saying, don't just stand there. There's a job to do. And the second thing we get is Jesus will come back in the same way he left. In just a few minutes, we're going to take communion uh, Dad, where's the until the Lord comes again? Is that 1 Corinthians 11? Yes. All right. 1 Corinthians 11. Sorry, I didn't prep this. Hold, please. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 says this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We have this wild thing that Jesus has given us in communion that's designed to help us understand that we exist in an era of time from his first coming to his second coming. That's when this assignment is valid. That's the the season that we exist in, the season of the church, the season of the Holy Spirit, the season of the scriptures, the season of our, our life as disciples of Jesus as we know it happens from the time that Jesus left this earth until the time that he comes again, and that's signified by communion. Jesus gave us this thing to remember his death by. He gave the bread, and he broke it, and said, this is my body given up for you. He took the cup of the new covenant in his blood, and he, and he drank it. He said, this is, my, uh, this is the, the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And he gave us this picture of Jesus' body and his blood that we're supposed to participate in until he comes. And the picture that we have is that each and every one of us are supposed to live with the expectation and anticipation that Jesus Christ is coming again, but that we have a task and an assignment to do now. We live full of hope that this is not the end, but also full of power for the assignment that we've been given for today. When we take communion, it does this crazy thing where it points us back to the finished work of Jesus and it points us forward to the second coming. We take it very seriously because it represents our sinfulness and what was needed for us to be washed clean, but we also take it very hopefully because it represents the season between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And we anticipate, we wait for the coming of Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to respond, worship, we have our prayer teams up here. We'll take communion, um, and we'll take offerings. So let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you for the good work that you're doing in each and every person in this room. Lord, I believe you're doing work, even in those that are not yet followers of Jesus. You're, you're stirring them up and inviting them to hear, to taste and see that you are good. And I pray even today, Lord, that there would this, just be this excitement and anticipation of the goodness of salvation. So Lord, we pray as we are filled by your Spirit that you would empower us to go as witnesses. And we pray for the relationships, the strangers. Pray for the nations, the places that we will go where you go before us. And we get to bear witness to the resurrection. We pray that you would use each and every one of us in powerful ways here and around the world, Lord. We love you. We praise you. In your name, amen.